it's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. So far, I've avoided Omicron, so I can't complain. <laughs> I was going to say, all of us casting that wary eye at yet another variant and the prospect of yet another set of possible restrictions. But we are very appreciative of the guidance that you have given us through this in terms of explaining how the Emergency Act works and how emergency health orders work. So regardless of what happens next, I am confident that we will understand the legalities of it, if, uh, if not anything else. That uh, it always helps to know why things are happening, right? All right. Let's take a look at um, today's agenda. I'm looking here. B.C. Court of Appeal increasing a sentence. Now, oftentimes, I would imagine that an offender would appeal a sentence to try to lessen the punishment. Or perhaps a crown would appeal the sentence to try to change it. Set this up for us. Yeah, so it can certainly go both ways. And this was an example of uh, Crown Counsel appealing, seeking a uh, a higher sentence than what a uh, judge imposed after a person pled guilty. Uh, the background of it is the woman who's the accused of this case was a bookkeeper uh, for a family-owned um, forestry company uh, up near Qualicum Beach in Errington. Mm-hmm. Um, and in her role as a bookkeeper, she manipulated the payroll system to cause uh, money to be paid out to her bank account uh, by uh, putting into the system that previous employees were still being paid and then changed their banking information to her banking information. Ooh, that's not good. And that scheme went on for about 10 months, and she wound up with $109,000. Wow. Um, she pled guilty to the offense, and the original judge that sentenced her sentenced her to a period of two years of a conditional sentence, which is like house arrest, followed by a period of probation. And Crown appealed that sentence to the Court of Appeal, uh, asking that the sentence should be served in prison rather than in uh, on house arrest. Uh, and as we've talked about before, when you appeal a sentence, it's not a matter of going and asking the uh, Court of Appeal for a do-over. You've got to point out why what the original judge did was um, fundamentally mistaken, right? So the sentence has to be outside of the range or demonstrably unfit, right? It's not yes. just let's try again and see what might stick with some different judges. Uh, and here the Crown was successful, which I must say isn't a terrible surprise given some of the background, including the fact that this bookkeeper had a serious previous record, including doing something similar to a previous employer. Wow. Um, and given the fact that where there's what's referred to as a breach of trust, it's uh, viewed as a serious aggravating factor, right? It's viewed as much more serious if you're the bookkeeper and you steal money than somebody who, I don't know, uh, happens by and sees uh, some something and just on the spur of the moment uh, takes uh, the equivalent amount of money, right? Because yes. the idea is that she was trusted in this role. Um, and so the Court of Appeal increased the sentence to a two-year um jail sentence, so she has to serve it in the jail rather than um, on house arrest at home. But when they did that, the way the Court of Appeal did that, bearing in mind the fact that it's not just a do-over, was interesting, and I think is something people might be interested to know about in terms of, you know, how does a sentencing hearing work in terms of the facts for the judge to decide what the sentence should be? Yes. Um, And 
When somebody is found guilty or pleads guilty, one of the advantages of that is that not all of the witnesses have to come to court to testify about what happened, right? You don't need to call, you know, all the employees to come and say, yes, I didn't work there any longer, or, you know, people from the bank and so on. That's part of the benefit of a guilty plea. But then on the sentencing, what is the judge to do in terms of the factual matrix that the judge is sentencing somebody on? And the way that ordinarily works is that the lawyers involved, Crown and Defense, would make submissions to the uh, judge about what they say the appropriate sentence should be and the factual basis for the sentencing. And so the Crown would stay up, stand up and say something like she was the bookkeeper, she manipulated the payroll system, she got $109,000, right? So the judge has some idea of, of what basis am I sentencing the person? Yeah. And ordinarily, you don't need to then call all of those witnesses to prove it. It's just the lawyer saying, this is what I say happened, right? Okay. And the way that works, however, is that in this case, the lawyer for the woman said that some of the mitigating factors included that she was uh, using opioids and had uh, mental health difficulties, including depression. Hmm. And the Crown took issue with that and didn't agree that those things were so and that they affected what the woman did or why she did it. And the way that works is that if either side disagrees on some point, like if the Crown says, I don't uh, agree that you were addicted to opioids and that's what caused this to happen, then it's up to the other side to prove it. So the idea is that both sides can make submissions. She was a bookkeeper. She sold $109,000. If nobody's objecting to that, the judge operates on the basis that that's true. Okay. And, And if the Crown alleges something aggravating, like, she did this before, right? She yes. was convicted of it. Again, the judge would assume, yep, okay, that's true, unless there's some somebody's objecting to that. But if there's an objection, like if the accused said, I wasn't convicted before, that must have been somebody else. Okay, well then, the Crown would have to prove that if the judge is going to take that into account as a factor that would make it more serious or aggravating. But the same is true on the other side. So when the lawyer for the woman uh, said, well, this was a, you know, she did this uh, act in part because she was addicted to opioids and has depression, if the Crown doesn't agree with that, if they said, no, we don't agree that that played a part of it, then the judge is not supposed to take that into account unless it's proven, hmm. right? So it's sort of a, each side can say what they want to say about aggravating or mitigating factors. And if there's no objection to it, the judge accepts what's being said is true. But if there's an objection to it, then either side has to prove it one way or the other. And here, because there was an objection, the Court of Appeal said, well, that wasn't proven. Like there was no evidence about how often was she using opioids or how her depression would have played some role in this theft of money over a long period of time. And so that was the core of the basis that the Court of Appeal used to get in and interfere with the sentence. Even though it was not a do-over, they said, well, that was just a fundamental problem when something's denied or denied that it's relevant to what happened, the other side's got to prove it. And the Court of Appeal did it in this case in a pretty strict way, and then at the end of so they increased the sentences the Crown asked for, but on the other hand, there was uh, probation to follow, which had conditions like not to consume alcohol. Uh, and on that one, the, Crown's, the Court of Appeal said, well, that condition wasn't appropriate. There is no evidence that alcohol had anything to do with this, right? Yeah. And so they deleted that condition from her probation. Huh. And so the takeaway um, is just to know how sentencing work, uh, and it does avoid witnesses coming, usually, 
But if there is a disagreement on either something that makes it more or less serious, then either side should be given a chance to try and prove that thing that they say is more or less serious. And if they can, fine, the judge would proceed on the basis of that so. But if they are given an opportunity and don't, then a judge would not take something into account as either an aggravating or mitigating factor. And so that's why in this case, the Court of Appeal was able to um, allow the Crown's appeal and increase the sentence given to the bookkeeper. Fascinating. So that's how all of it fits together. Let's take our first break, because up next, it's interesting. It talks about the use of MS teams in the provincial court, as well as what role that might play going forward if we ever do find our way out of yet another variant and yet another wave in this pandemic. But I don't want to sound overly glum today. So we'll talk about that coming up (laughs) in just a moment. As Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues. Stay with us. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next, the provincial court and MS Teams video rules. Now, Michael, Hmm. I can think of very few places in which decorum and procedure is more important than a court of law, whether it's conducted in person or over the Internet. What's the latest update? Well, the provincial court has really fully embraced the use of uh, MS Teams and remote video technology. It it came, of course, the impetus, of course, was COVID, uh, but... Uh, it's now being used to really pretty good effect in terms of both keeping people at a social distance as endless streams of uh, variants seem to arise, uh, but uh, also I think it's adding quite a bit to efficiency for appropriate proceedings, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be suitable for a trial, but there are all kinds of things that are short of a trial that it works really well for. It's a, it's a quite a stark change if you walk into like a courthouse in Victoria uh, courtroom 101 used to be the uh, sort of main remand court with a judge in it. Yes. Uh, and now on most days, there is no judge physically present. There's a video screen upon which the judge appears. And hmm. so if somebody were to show up there, you're appearing in front of a video screen. Hmm. Um, but one of the interesting things that's arisen is, and it's sort of like where they locate guardrails on highways, you know, where there's a problem, uh, we get these sort of, uh, you know, semi-weekly, it seems like, updates to the rules of decorum uh, for uh, appearances on video. Uh, and I must say, as I read these things, it causes me to think that each one of these things is, of course, the result of some unsatisfactory previous effort. For example, <laughs> landscape mode, if using a smartphone, flip your uh, phone horizontally in landscape mode so that your full headshot is displayed. <laughs> so... You know, no doubt there's some, you know, video of a talking mouth with no top or bottom of the head if somebody uh, doesn't position their phone in the right way. One of the, mo- one of the most recent ones, which was a, is a requirement to use a neutral background. Yes. Counsel are required to do it. Others are encouraged to do it, which calls to mind for me, somebody's probably got some, you know, the uh, tropical island background or something going on that may not be in keeping with the solemnity of the uh, proceeding. Other interesting things include uh, focus on your camera. They say direct eye contact is important. Yeah, they that's... People looking into their camera. That's is, a is that an issue? Because you've made arguments over MST teams and whatnot. Have, do you find that it disconcerting? Because it, you don't actually make eye contact with the person on the screen. You're supposed to look at the camera. Is that difficult? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I mean, I just sort of look at the screen and off we go. Um, I know that's actually a cultural issue. Uh, at trials, there's actually appellate uh, authority for the proposition that when judges are assessing the credibility of witnesses, one of the things which can be culturally misleading is that idea of eye contact. 
and in some cultures is viewed as a sign of truth-telling when you're looking straight at the person when you're speaking, hmm. but that's not universal. And so uh, it would be uh, unwise to draw the conclusion that somebody who's not making direct eye contact with you is necessarily less truthful, hmm. uh, because in some cultures that would be considered inappropriate or rude. Uh, and so it's interesting that one of the express directions in the guide here from the provincial court is the importance of direct eye contact. Hmm. Um, other requirements seem reasonable, dress appropriately uh, and so forth. Um, there's also a prohibition on recording what's going on and links. People should be aware of that. That's not allowed. Uh, there's an exception to that for accredited media who are permitted to make audio recordings um, as an aid to note-taking, not that they could replay them or broadcast them, but to make sure that they've got an accurate recording for reporting purposes. Um, other admonitions include not to take notes on a computer because the typing sound can be annoying, and they want you to use a pen and paper. Uh, and then they also don't want you to smoke, vape, eat, or drink <laughs> during proceedings. Uh, which imagine? is understandable. <laughs> Lighting up a cigarette probably during your court proceeding is not uh, encouraged. So, a big bite out uh, of a ham sandwich as, as somebody's talking. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> That's frowned upon. Maintain eye contact, put down the ham sandwich, and turn your phone to landscape, sir. Oh. Right? So, anyways, these are endlessly updated. But I think one of the things people should know about is that generally it's working very well. Hmm. Um, and the... COVID resulted, I think, in some money being uh, put into the system so there could be adequate internet connections and cameras and, and all of it. The interesting thing with the judges is many of them are working remotely. Yes. Uh, they've got a, a background they can put up that looks like a fake wood paneling with a fake court crest behind it. Um, and one of the other efficiencies it permits is you can have judges from different areas of the province. And so like if you had a judge you know, if all the judges in Victoria were busy and you needed another judge for some kind of a hearing where you could do it remotely, they can now just pull in a judge that might be available in Kelowna right, or wherever else it might be. And so uh, that's one of the other things which has really added efficiency. Just make sure you've got a neutral background and don't smoke. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's, it. You just know somebody did. Like you say, every rule comes from someone somewhere doing something that they shouldn't have, but there was technically not a rule against it, so one had to be created. Um, speaking about rules that are against something, so had to be technically created, we've talked in the past off and on about what exactly the rules are about income tax avoidance versus evasion and how far somebody can actually stretch the letter of the law um, before they're actually found to have either failed to fulfill their obligations or even potentially committed an offense. I see that there's actually an update on that, isn't there? There is, from the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and the starting point principle that the court uh, recites in this case includes the idea that it's a well-accepted principle that taxpayers are entitled to arrange their affairs to minimize the amount of tax payable. Right. And you think about that for a moment. You think, well, yes, of course, that's got to be so. Right. right. Yeah. You could, for example, say, look, I know how the Income Tax Act works and uh, might make it might be a good idea to put some money into your RRSP and reduce your tax obligations. Right. Nothing yes. wrong with that. You've looked at the act and you've complied with it. Now, the Income Tax Act is like if you get it in paper, it makes the criminal code look like a pamphlet. I think it weighs about <laughs> twice as much and they're printing it on paper now that's virtually transparent. And so there's a lot going on in there. Um, but as if all the provisions in there weren't enough, uh, there's a particular provision I think people would find interesting referred to as GAR, which is sort of threatening. GAR. So that's G-A-A-R. 
and that's the general anti-avoidance rule. And it's sort of the rough equivalent of if you inserted into the criminal code uh, an extra provision that said something like, if you do something bad we haven't thought of, that might also be a crime. That's <laughs> so terrifying. That is a terrifying right. thing to have in the criminal code. Indeed. We have that in the Income Tax Act in the form of this GAR, right? And so the idea there is that, um, and the court acknowledges that having this general provision, which is the general anti-avoidance rule, limits both certainty, because you can't just look up what the wording says in the criminal in the Income Tax Act and say, oh, yes, I see here I can, you know, put this much money into my RRSP or something. Yes. The wording may not be the end of it, right? Uh, and it also interferes with that general concept that you can organize your affairs to minimize the amount of tax payable. Yeah. Now, the fact pattern in this case that went to the court of a, or to the Supreme Court of Canada involved an American oil and gas company that created a Luxembourg subsidiary called Alta Luxembourg, which in turn had its own subsidiary in Canada called Alta Canada. Interesting. Um, and then eventually, eventually the Alta Canada. Uh, made a big profit, um, and the uh, the way the thing worked is that they then sold the shares of this Luxembourg company, um, and they did so in accordance with a tax treaty that Canada has with Luxembourg, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and in so doing, avoided having to pay income tax on this $380 million profit. Now, the government didn't like that, but it seemed to accord with what the tax treaty permitted, right? There's provision that allowed this to happen under this tax treaty we've got with Luxembourg. And so the government argued, gar, right? <laughs> this is a contrary to the general anti-avoidance rule. We didn't, this can't, you can't do this. Um, and so that went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada applied, well, how do you know whether something violates this generalized idea yeah. uh, that you can't do anything which would be, in a, you know, gar? <laughs> and so there's a test for it. But the test, I don't know if it really clears things up. It says <laughs> you know, there's a three-part test. Yeah. First of all, whether there's a tax benefit to the transaction. Well, of course, that's so where this wouldn't be there. Yeah. Two, whether the transaction... Uh, is an avoidance transaction. So, you know, I don't know how that helps define it because really, have you engaged in a transaction to pay more tax? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Um, and so that brings us really to the third part of it, uh, which is whether the avoidance transaction is abusive. Well, how does that clarify what on earth this means? Well, we've, we've created a legal test for what is abusive. And here's the language, and we can think about whether that is going to clarify it for people. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue there when you're determining whether something is abusive is whether it is contrary to the object, spirit, and purpose of the legislation. Object, spirit, and purpose. Okay. So what is exactly does that mean, right? To be like, you know, don't do anything that, you know, the criminal, you know, don't do anything bad that we didn't think of in the criminal code. You know, the spirit of the whole thing, right? <laughs> well, how am I supposed to, what am I supposed to not do? Um uh, and so here, what the Supreme Court of Canada did, trying to sort out whether what this U.S. company did was allowed or not, because it fit within the wording of the tax treaty, what was yes. in there, it's permitted. Um, they looked at the object, spirit, and purpose of the treaty. So they looked at the treaty mm -hmm. and the language in the treaty, and they concluded that the purpose of the treaty was to um, encourage international uh, investment, 
right? So they looked okay. at why might you have put this wording into the treaty that allowed for this transaction that meant that they didn't have to pay tax on the $380 million from operations in Canada. And they concluded, well, the purpose of this treaty was to encourage international investment. Uh, and so uh, the fact uh, that uh, somebody carefully read the treaty and structured their company in such a way that allowed them to have this subsidiary of a Luxembourg company own the company in Canada, they looked at it and said, yes, not only does that fit within the wording of it, you carefully read the rule book and you fit your, struck your transaction into the wording, but they found that the government's argument about GAR didn't stop it uh, because the object, spirit, and purpose of that treaty was to encourage international investment. And I guess this sort of did. Interesting. Um, and so people should be aware of it. And I think there is really a legitimate public policy consideration there of, you know, is it really acceptable in terms of, you know, we want to live in a place where the rule of law applies such that you can know what am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do so I can order my affairs accordingly. It shouldn't just be the length of the foot of the person looking at it after the fact. And we've defined it in this way that it means that it, it turns on whether the, the spirit or purpose of the whole thing, uh, which, you know, the, the Supreme Court of Canada acknowledges that the fact that they have that provision in the otherwise enormous Income Tax Act does erode certainty. Um, and so anytime some transaction like this was proposed, ultimately the accountant or tax lawyer who would be setting say the, kind the, of a the tax up, solicitor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Is going to be saying ultimately, well, you know, this might or might not get caught by GAR. Uh, and so uh, it produces litigation like this that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, because you really can't figure it out just by looking at the wording. So people should know about GAR that is there, but in this case, uh, the Luxembourg subsidiary operation uh, worked out and no tax payable. All right. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. Out of time, have to run, but thanks as always. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure.